I'll start it out Thank you. with another prayer. And then just if you want to um, ask questions, I'll, I'll say a couple quick things, though. But let me pray first. Father, I, I worship you that you allow us to ask questions. And how often your son dignified the questions his disciples asked. And we're grateful that we have a faith where we can stretch and grow and our hearts can fill with wonder and awe. I know my limits, Lord, and I pray that you would give me grace to work to the extent of them. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit that I might serve these people this evening. And I pray, Father, that this time would produce our um, seeking to love you more and live for you better. I also want to echo the prayers that were prayed for all of the presentations of the gospel that will occur tonight, that there will be many students who would come to know Jesus, and that 20, 30, 50 years from now, when somebody says, where was it? They would have the fond memory of Hume and their time here when they gave their heart to your son. But let this not just be a moment where they're born again. I pray that they would be born to grow and that all those who make decisions tonight would stretch and grow and mature in their faith and be ambassadors for your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you have any questions, my wheelhouses are, are few and far between. Um, most of my academic work was on C.S. Lewis and um, I've there's 73 books. I think the least I've read of any of them is six times. And uh, the most, one of them I read over 60 times. I lost track. And I'm, I've always got a Lewis book I'm rereading. But I read the books that he refers to, and so um, the Lewis thing is big for me. Then along with that um, evangelism, he wrote in one of his essays, Woe to you if you do not evangelize. Lewis was very committed to sharing his faith. And evangelism is interesting to me as well as follow-up and spiritual formation. And then an area, because of the Lewis interests, would also be some areas in literature and some areas in um, uh, apologetics. Uh, not all areas of apologetics, but some areas of apologetics. My doctoral dissertation was on C.S. Lewis, but it focused on the area of the problem of evil. So I don't know Lewis that well, but I'm getting the evil stuff down. So anyway, there you go. Okay. Just a, just a point of, uh, of order. Um, raise your hand. I'll come to you with a the mic. There you go. There we go. And, and please do me a favor. Before you ask your question, tell me your name so I can speak to you directly. Okay. Name is Linda Burns. Linda? And I have an evangelism question for yes, you. Yes, yes. Oh, you've got it written out. I'm in uh, trouble. I do. Um, I was hoping that you could share a conversation, how you've transitioned conversation to spiritual matters when you're talking to people, um, possibly what questions you might ask yes. to kind of open that, or how you even start that conversation when that's in your heart right. to go a little deeper with that. That's a great question. Um, I don't think that we ever take Jesus to anybody. He's already there, and he's more interested in that person than you and I will ever be. 
So we want to go and try and discover where God's already working in that person's heart, and we want to work with that and see if we can't make explicit what he might already be doing implicitly. So I, I believe there are certain protocols for different kinds of evangelism. You have um, uh, Jesus when he's just talking to people uh, on the way, um, maybe the woman at the well, he's never met her before. You've got Paul in the Agora in Acts 17 when he's in Athens, and he's just talking to people in the marketplace. So that's what I call contact evangelism. Then you have context evangelism, where maybe you have some shared affinity, and that would be like Jesus and Paul in the synagogue. They go in the synagogue, they already have a shared cultural value, they have some shared uh, understanding, they believe in the Old Testament and all that sort of thing. Then you have friendship evangelism. I know some people say, oh, I don't do that other kind of evangelism. I do friendship evangelism. I go, how's that going for you? And it means that they use that as an excuse to not even talk to their friends because if the friends have known them for ages and they've never brought up issues related to the gospel, it becomes awkward for them to do it at that point. So let's see if we can look at all three, how you could segue conversations at that point. Um, if, you've, if you've never met the person, you are free to ask public questions. If the person doesn't want to answer them, that's okay. But if they, they answer them, listen to the answers. And in the answers, they give you permission to go deeper. So um, you can say to a person, this happened to me once in Chicago, I met this guy, I said, what's your name? He said, Peter. Now, what do I know about him? He's in Chicago. I don't know why he's in Chicago. But I said, Peter, are you from Chicago? That's not an intrusive question, he's there. And he said, no, actually, I, I was born and raised in, in Albuquerque, but when my parents divorced when I was 12, I moved to Chicago with my mother. He didn't have to tell me that, but once he told me that, he gave me permission to go deeper. And I could ask about that. Eventually, as every answer he gave me to the questions I asked based on the data he gave me, it got to the place where he, he wasn't so... Angry. He was angry that his father had bolted from the family, but he was more upset about the fact that he didn't like the toxicity of his inability to forgive his father and what that was doing to him. So I know now when I present the gospel where I can present it where he's likely to be heard. And it basically was um, um, that Jesus can give you the power to forgive and bring peace to your heart. Now, one time, I, I, I would go out with students at Wheaton, and we'd go to Ogilvy Transportation Center. Wheaton is a bedroom town of Chicago. So we'd take the train in, and there's a food court right there. And I knew people were either waiting for somebody or waiting for a train to go home or something like that. So I would just go up and talk to them, and this was, I think, a fair protocol. I would say, I'm, I'm a professor at Wheaton College. I've got some students here, and we're talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if we talk with you? It's very upfront. It's not hiding any agenda, and so on. So this one guy, this one guy I went to, and I saw a lot of people come to Christ. And I would say 17 out of 20. If I asked 20 people, 17 would be willing to talk with me. It's interesting. So, so this one guy, I, I, he said, he said, um, you're, you're, you're not going to get to me. I, I'm Jewish. And I said, that's how Jesus started out. <laughs> and he started laughing. So it was a little humor. So that meant then 
it wasn't maybe so goofy. And, and, and I said, what, what's your name? And he said his name was uh, Daniel. <laughs> and I said, you know what Daniel means? He said, no, what? I said, it means God is my judge. I said, it's a great biblical name. He says, listen, you're not going to get through to me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a committed Jew. And, and besides that, this is our high holy day. I said, oh, which day is it? He said, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And, and, and um, I said, I am going to get through to you. He says, oh, and he says, it's a high holy day. Uh, I said, what day? He said, Day of Atonement. And he said, you're not going to get through to me. And I said, I'm not going to change. That was what he said. I'm not going to change. I said, yeah, you are, because you already have. He said, what do you mean? I said, if you're a Jew, and this is your high holy day, it was a Friday night, and you're not in temple, clearly you've changed. You should be in temple. And he said, you got me. And I said, Daniel, you're here in Chicago. Is this where you're from? You asked the public question. Are you from Chicago? Yeah. And I said, what kinds of things do you do in Chicago? He says, I'm a playwright. I said, oh, well, what, what makes for good theater? And he says, you've got to have human conflict. The, the human soul is a struggling soul. And that opened up the door. And we started talking for 20 minutes about the problems of what it is to be human in a human culture where there are struggles and so on. And, and, and then I started sharing with him how Christ can bring about these changes. He said, I, you know, I've got to go catch my, this is a guy who didn't want to talk 20 minutes. I've got to go catch my train. But I said, well, before you go, let me ask you another question. What's your last name? I mean, your middle name, your middle name. And he said, Joshua. <laughs> and I said, Daniel, your name is the gospel. Daniel is, God is my judge, but Joshua is, God is my salvation. Jehovah is my salvation. And he's, he's leaving like this. <laughs> and he walks out. Okay, so that's somebody you know. At work, at work it, you listen to the people. And you, you listen to what's going on in their life. Maybe, maybe their, their child is in the hospital. Go to the child and visit with them. Bring them flowers. Call up and see how they're doing. And all of a sudden they say, you're different. What is it about you? Because you've shown caring. And they give you the opportunity to share the gospel. With friendship evangelism, you can easily go to a person and say, you know what? I've known you for years. I know when your birthday is. I know the names of your kids. We've shared uh, barbecues at one another's houses, uh, you know, in the summer and stuff. And I realize as much as I know about you, I have never asked about your spiritual story. And I think all of us are spiritual beings, and I, I feel embarrassed about it. And I'm wondering if sometime, sometime is the operative word, I wonder if sometime maybe we could sit down and we could talk about that. I'd love to hear your story. Next time you talk to him, have small talk. Next time you talk to him, say, remember when we said that maybe sometime I could hear your story? How about if we go to breakfast this Saturday morning? And I just want to hear your story. And, and um, crew uses this method, and they say 98% of the time, the friend would say, sure, let's talk about it sometime. Then you take them to breakfast, and you hear their story. Maybe you hear they were hurt by somebody in the church. You can say, please forgive us. I'm a Christian. Please forgive us for that. I wouldn't want anything any Christian ever did to keep you from seeing how much you're loved by God. 
um, you might find out that they had a time where they came to faith when they were young and they drifted and they just have never been invited back to church. That opens up the door for you to know exactly what to do. Or it might be they've never heard and they're curious. One of two things will happen, though, after they tell their story. They'll say to you, could you tell me your story? And they give you permission to share your testimony with them. Or if they don't do that, from then on, whenever you talk to them, you know where the touch points are where you're likely to connect the gospel to their life. Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got one back there. The guy that looks like Jordan Peterson. Hey, thanks, Jerry. Uh, Lewis question for What's you. What's your first name? Jeff. Jeff, forgive uh, me. Your name means heavenly peace, by the way. I, I, and Linda, your name means beautiful. Sometimes if you can remember what people's names mean, it opens up conversation. But anyway, go ahead, Jeff. Any insights you can provide on the relationship of Lewis, Tolkien, and Chesterton? Well, it's interesting. Chesterton died in 1936. So Lewis was about 37 or 38 years old. I don't remember the months. Um, so uh, Lewis never met Chesterton. And I don't think Tolkien ever did, too, it did either. Um, Lewis's friend Dorothy Sayers knew Chesterton fairly well. And I think maybe Charles Williams, who was one of Lewis's close friends, might have known Chesterton. But Chesterton was about um, 30 years Lewis's uh, senior. Um, Lewis was deeply influenced by Chesterton's writings. And Tolkien refers to Chesterton, certainly in one case that comes immediately to mind, is in his essay on fairy stories. And I mentioned last night, I think, about the, 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 the uh, prohibition, um, the, the, uh, we have a fence. When we're called to obedience, there's a fence, and we don't want to go outside of it. That's all from Chesterton. So um, Lewis refers to Chesterton with some frequency. He was one of Lewis's favorite authors. And, um, but, they, but Lewis and Tolkien, of course, were best of friends. But they, I, don't, I don't have any knowledge that either of them ever met Chesterton. I've been to his home. I've been to his grave. This guy was a massive guy. He makes Dre look like a midget, you know. He was just a big guy. And, and his grave is one of the biggest graves I've ever seen. It's huge. Anyway, I don't know if that means anything. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, just, yeah. You mentioned uh, Tolkien and uh, Lewis being good friends. Do you have any insights on, their, on uh, Tolkien's thoughts of the Chronicles of Narnia? He didn't like them. Yeah, he, he thought that they were a hodgepodge, and he, he um, was, was somewhat dismissive of them. And yet, what he didn't like about them, I think he influenced Lewis to include in them. Because Lewis was, uh, Tolkien, before Lewis was a Christian, Tolkien was talking about how Lewis, why wasn't he a Christian? He loved all the great myths wherever he met them, of the gods coming down in both Greek myths and Roman myths and uh, Nordic myths especially. And why is it that as much as he loved the story, and oftentimes a God who comes down and gives up his life for somebody else, as much as you love the story, why is it that you won't accept it at the one place where it reports to be historic and true? And, and that caused Lewis to really start wondering about that. And in essence, Tolkien was saying all the myths are pointing to Christ. 
Lewis would later, later write an essay along those lines also. Um, and consequently, when myth became fact, as the essay Lewis wrote. So when, when um, Lewis uses the Narnian books, he has all the mythology coming in. And Tolkien thought that it wasn't pure. So you've got, you know, you've got uh, uh, Greek myths and pagan myths, dryads and naiads. You've got minotaurs and centaurs. And you've got um, um, uh, dwarves. You've got um, Santa Claus. What's Santa Claus doing in this thing, you know? And he just says, you just made a hodgepodge of it all. And Lewis is trying to say, no, all of these stories that God has breathed into culture in some senses are giving us... Uh, uh, indicators that should move us towards God. Lewis believed this, that the pagan myths were to the pagan society what the Old Testament was to the Jewish society, tutors to lead us to Christ. We have it in our own culture, too. A, a quick example, James Cameron, every time I've heard him interviewed, he hates Christians, and he takes a swipe at us. But look at his stories. He's always telling our story. You got Terminator 2, uh, an alien from another world comes into our world and lays down his life to save the woman and her child. The next movie he makes, he spends more money than had ever been spent on a movie up to that time, Titanic. And here's the doomed ship. We know the story. But Jack, who doesn't have a ticket, he wins a ticket in a, in a card game and ends up on the Titanic, goes immediately at the bow of the ship, makes the shape of the cross and says, I'm king of the world. There's a woman on that ship who, who is uh, uh, promised in marriage by her mother to a guy who's a devil incarnate. And the mother says, I don't want to be a washerwoman. Her husband's died, left them penniless. So she's pushing her daughter into this horrible set of circumstances, not of the woman's own making. And she sees no way out, so she goes to the stern of the ship, and Jack just happens to be there and saves her life. They bring the now old lady back when they discover the Titanic, asking her to tell them the story of that night. And she tells the story, and they say, we don't even have a record of him on the church register. I mean, on the, on the, on the uh, Titanic register. And she says, isn't that amazing? But he saved me in every way. Mysteriously comes onto the ship, saves her, mysteriously disappears. And then what's the next movie he makes? Avatar. It's about a man who takes on the flesh of that world, goes into that world, saves that world. You know what avatar means in Sanskrit? Who said it? You're right, incarnation. Good job, Tommy. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I don't know if that's helpful or not. So Tolkien didn't like it. I think Tolkien fed Lewis's imagination and put the data in there, and then Lewis picks up on it. They all point to Jesus. Anybody else? Yes. Dre. Wait a second. Where's the mic? Do you mind sharing the story of a kid in your youth group named Todd? This is a little selfish. Oh, about the Buddhist? About the... No, uh, maybe I'm... Todd's the one that introduced me to the Buddhist who had just no, gotten No, I'm back. butchering it then. Um, on a flight. He ended up on a flight. Um, Beamer. Huh? Beamer. Oh, Oh, uh, do you guys know the name Todd Beamer? Flight 93, let's roll. He used to be a kid in my youth group years ago. And he loved Jesus. He had come to our house for Bible study sometimes and so on. I just did his son, Andrew's, premarital counseling um, this last fall. But, but um, 
Yeah, he was in our youth group. It's crazy. Wheaton College, somehow they attract great, great students. And I feel like Forrest Gump, you know, because I somehow get in connection with all these people. But Todd loved Jesus. He cared deeply about Christ. The last what? What exactly took place? With Todd Bieber? Let's let roll the moment. I'm trying to remember. He was and on Flight 93, the one the terrorists had, and they were going to fly it back to Washington, D.C., and they had gotten on their phones, and they realized that these other planes had flown into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon. And so Todd, with some others on the plane, decided they needed to do something because they were going to be used as a missile to kill people. So they had the flight attendant, I guess, knew some karate, this woman, but she gets a bunch of pots of boiling water. And then there was another guy on the plane who was a rugby player, another guy who I think was a judo guy, and Todd was an athlete, he was a baseball player, and basketball player at Wheaton College. And they took that cart, and they ran as fast as they could into the door, broke through the door, threw the hot water on the terrace and all that stuff, and fought them. The plane ends up cra uh, crashing, but before they made the charge, Todd said, let's roll. And it was on the phone, and it became sort of a, a war cry. So Wheaton College, their, their uh, motto is, that, is the rolling thunder, thunder. And even the ROTC program, he was ROTC at, at Wheaton College. Were they called the rolling thunder when you were there? Yeah, so the rolling thunder... And then when the football team goes out, they always tap this thing. It says, let's roll. The basketball play team, when they go out to play, they say, let's roll. And it was all just to honor Todd Beamer, one of their own, who went down on that day. And his kids were little then, and you're in, you're he, in touch with them he, he He had two kids. One of them actually came and played football at Wheaton. Uh, the, the, two, the two boys came. He had two boys at that time, and his wife, Lisa, was pregnant uh, with their daughter. He never saw her daughter, but he will. He will see her. Yeah, it's very moving. And they, and they named the uh, student center at Wheaton College, the Beamer Center, in honor of him. He was a good guy. He was a really good guy. Paul, and I got a twofer. <laughs> a what? A two twofer. Two questions. Okay. <laughs> you can take them in each order. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book. Why don't you ask one at a time, because my memory won't be able to recall. Okay, well, let's try it Lewis first. Uh, he wrote a book, Till We Have Faces. Yes. Can you give a synopsis of that and what in the world he was talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's a book you can't read once. It's a complex theme, and it's also a haunting theme. And there's this woman. It's, it's, it's basically taking the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and just as we were talking about myths before, he's talking about how maybe this myth could lift us and elevate our thoughts to point them ultimately to God. So there's this psyche in the myth is, is a, a mortal who's loved by... Um, um, Claudia says, my mind's like lightning, one flash, then total, total darkness. Huh? No, or rules the queen. That's the older sister. But she, she's loved by um, Cupid. Cupid. So in the myth, Cupid sees Psyche and takes her off to his castle. And she can marry 
Psyche can marry Cupid as long as she never looks at his face. So she tries to see his face while he's sleeping, and she's looking at him with the lamp, and, and some hot oil falls on him, and then there's a crisis, and she has all these things she has to do to get back into his good graces. So when Lewis takes it, um, there's a woman named Orule. She's the daughter of the king. And she, she's ugly, very ugly. And the king doesn't pay her much mind, but she's very smart. The king ends up marrying. His wife has died. There's another sister, Redival, and the, and the, the, um, the king's wife has died. So he takes on another wife, and this wife isn't much older than Orule herself. And she dies in childbirth. And the king comes in there and he goes, you know, girls, 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 I'm cursed with girls. And a servant boy goes to take a flagon of wine to the king and he trips on an uneven stone and spills it. And the king takes out his knife and just kills the servant boy. And Orul is watching all this. And she says, I've since fixed that stone. She hates her father, but that's an indicator in the in the book, how she's not really all that unlike her father. And Orule begins the book with a complaint against the gods. She's angry at the gods. And it ends up that, that um, she becomes sort of a surrogate mother to Psyche. Psyche calls her Maya, mother. And Orule wants to, in some senses, embrace her, but unwittingly, she begins to want to control her. And she's mad at the gods and what the gods have done, that she's ugly, that she's, she's uh, uh, disregarded and so on. And, and when, when um, Psyche, who, who, as she matures, becomes extremely beautiful, and the people, when they see her, one day she goes out into the, into the town, and the people see her, and they want to worship her. Or rule doesn't want that because the god of their land called Unga, she thinks, will be made jealous and she doesn't know what's going to happen. Pretty soon all the people start bringing flowers to her and almost worshiping her. And then all of a sudden things change and things start going bad. And the priest of Unga comes and wants something to be done about this. So he thinks somebody needs to be sacrificed to the god Unga to make up for this. And Orul is angry, and angry at the gods, that they took Psyche from her because it ends up that Psyche has to go up to this mountain and be tied to a tree and left there as sacrifice to the gods. And Orul can do nothing about it. And so finally, um, after a few months, she becomes real good friends with Bardia, the head of the king's army, and she gets him to take her up to the mountain. And she finds the chains where she had been chained to the tree, and she sees Psyche. And she thinks Psyche has been uh, taken by bandits, because Psyche says, I'm, I'm, I'm married to one of the gods, and I can stay married to him as long as I don't see him. And Orul, Orul says, no, this is false, this is wrong, somebody's taking advantage of you. And if that's true, where's your castle? And she says, don't you see it? You're sitting on the very steps of the castle. And Orul doesn't see it. And Orul begins to think Psyche's mad and that something's happened to her, when in fact, there is a castle. But Orul 
at one moment saw it, and then she doesn't see it anymore. And she doesn't ever, when she tells the story in the future, throw in the detail that she once saw the castle. Her father dies. She becomes queen of Glom, this country. And, 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 and she's angry again at the gods, but she goes back to see her rule again now as queen and says, you need to go and take a lamp and look at his face because I think this is just a brigand who's taking advantage of you. And she says, no, I won't. He loves me. I love him. And she says, you must. If you don't, I'll kill myself. And she takes a knife and jams it through her own arm. And Psyche loves Orul. She loves her husband. And she's stuck in this situation. And she says to Orul, you're teaching me about forms of love I didn't know. As a matter of fact, I think there are some forms of hatred that are better than your form of love. And so anyway, Psyche goes with the, with the candle, with the lamp. And sure enough, the drop falls on the god. He wakes up, and Psyche's banished. And she has to earn her way back somehow. And there are many things in that part of the story. It's a lot of detail. They're very interesting. I'm not going to go into them. But it ends up, finally, or rule through all of this, starts to make some progress. She ends, it's in two books. She ends the first book, she says, no answer. I asked you, God, why is there no answer? Why haven't you not responded to my complaints? But in the second book, the hardness begins to drift away. And at the end of the second book, she finally comes to a place where she finishes with this. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. And before your face, all questions die away. And she dies. And the priest of, of, uh, of Ungat now is a younger man who had become a friend of Or Rules when she was queen. He writes at the end of the book, this has been written by Or Rule." Queen of Glom. If anybody is going to the Greek lands, please take this with you. For she was the wisest, the most just, the most merciful, the most gracious ruler there ever was in Glom. And what you realize is all the internal struggle had been here, but the way she had treated people out here caused them to say she was the best. It's a very powerful book, and there's a lot of other nuances, relationships between this, this uh, head of the army and, and her relationship with the fox, who was the one who had been her childhood teacher and was her confidant for all those years and stuff like that. She has to discover how she had been selfish in her relationships, how she used people. She has to discover the horror. She has those moments of disequilibrium that bring her to a proper understanding of herself rather than this false notion. So that's, I probably spoiled it for you. I hope you go read it. Are any of you interested after that, after that thing? Oh, real. Lewis thought it was one of his three best books. Okay, so your second question. Uh, was that okay? Yeah. Probably too thank long. You. No. The second one relates to uh, the parable of the seed and the four soils. Uh-huh. You mentioned that the other the yeah, last evening night. And, the, and the fruit that comes. Um, is the... Is it possible, is the parable about salvation of souls 
uh, growing in different soils? Or is it only that saved souls are faithful? I, I guess I'm fishing on the carnal Christian. Uh, the, the seed foil falls and the thorns choke it out. Did that person lose their, no. their benefits or did they lose their salvation? First no, they didn't lose three. their salvation. And I, don't, I, I think in the parables, usually, just as parabolical form, literary form, parables are usually designed to, to tell one thing. Not always. There are exceptions. The parable of the sower is one. But, but usually they're designed to tell one thing. And if we forget that, if we make an allegory out of it, we make messes of them. So when, when Jesus tells the story of the, of the uh, widow who, who wants some right set, something set right in court, and she goes to the unjust judge, she's pounding on his door, and he won't help her. And he's pounding on his door, and she, he, he won't help her. And finally, she's, she's just made an annoyance of herself, and he comes down and helps her. And Jesus says, um, thus we should always pray with persistence. Well, if you make an allegory of that, then the unjust judge is God. That's not his point. His point was one thing, pray with persistence. And we have to keep that in mind. You've got the, the parable of the publican and the, and the, uh, the Pharisee and the publican. And, and the publican won't even lift his face towards heaven. He's beating his chest and he's saying, Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Pharisees in the middle of the temple, middle, where everybody could see him, unlike the publican who's over in some corner, and he's saying, Lord, you're so uh, lucky to have me on your team. You know, I, I, I tithe down to my spice cabinet. I, I, I am serving you. I am such a righteous person. You're so lucky, and I'm glad I'm not like this mud filth publican over here. And we read that, and we say, Man, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee, and poof, we are. That was the point. And so I think that's what he's doing. But when the parable of the four soils, he's just talking about the fact that the seed, the gospel, goes out. It's broadcast. By the way, I have to say this real quick. There's a book that was written, C.S. Lewis, at the BBC, and it's about how the BBC broadcast that became Mere Christianity came about. And the guy that was a historian for the BBC put it together. And he's telling that story. But in the introduction, he talks about the BBC itself. And the guy who started, his name was uh, Reed, Reed or Reed Felt, I forget his name. And he, he's starting this broadcasting company. There had been nothing, everything's new. So he wants to say, how am I going to describe what we're doing with the transmissions that are going out from this place? And he's, he was a Christian. He was reading that day in his devotions, Matthew 13. And the sower went out to sow, and he cast his seed broadcast. And he said, that's it. We'll call them broadcasts. And he got it from Matthew 13. You hear it all the time now, but that's how it started. And it's in the book. If you want to identify it, it's in the book, C.S. Lewis of the BBC. So anyway, he, he cast the seed broadcast. It's the gospel seed. And that means then some of it's going to fall on bad soil, some of it's going to fall on good. What does that tell you about God right there? God is not holding this back and just giving it begrudgingly to certain people. He's making his word known. And some fall on hard soil. Some fall on soil that's thin, 
and rocky, and it springs up fast, and in the heat of the sun, it dies. Some among um, uh, the weedy soil, and some on good soil, 30, 60, 100 fold. I don't think Jesus is saying anything about the doctrine of salvation, about whether or not you can lose your salvation, and so on. He's just talking about how the soil germinates and how the seed germinates in different soils, and the one that we want to prize most highly is the good soil, and, and so on. But if we want to look at it more, and we want to develop teaching points from it, avoid making an allegory of it, we could say, yeah, there are some people who get really distracted because the cares of the day, Jesus even interprets it that way when he goes back and visits it with his disciples. The cares of the day have squeezed out any kind of vitality of faith. And, and, and if you could even go as far as to, well, let's look at these soils. What could we do as people who want to share Christ with others do when we meet a person who might fall into that soil category? Well, if a person's been walked all over and they're beat up and their heart is hard because they've been hurt, maybe we could do a little rototilling there, you know, put some water down and and rake it up and fertilize it a little bit and make it good soil. What do you do with the rocky soil? Well, maybe we could cart in a couple wheelbarrows of soil so it would be better. What do we do with the weedy soil? Maybe we could pull some of the weeds and make it so it would be better for the, the soil to germinate. I think that would be a good teaching way to go with it. But the point is, the seed is seeds broadcast. It's out there. Everybody has an opportunity to encounter it. But now, what are we doing with our heart? What kind of heart are we allowing that seed to come into? Is that helpful a little bit? Yeah. Huh? We got one back here? Thank you, Paul. What's your first name, sir? Jerry. Jerry? Yes. Wait a minute. You're Same. Jerry, and I'm Jerry. Same. Together we're Jerry squared, but by myself, I'm Jerry Root. <laughs> I wait for opportunities to use that. <laughs> I'm Jerry R. as well. You're Jerry you're, R. You're Jerry what? R. First, first uh, letter of the last name. Rhymer is the name, but R. Jerry R., Jerry R. Pleased uh -huh. to meet you. I want to ask you to speculate a little bit, you knowing the mind of your friend, Lewis. I don't know his mind. I, I'm intrigued. Um. Want to, you, want to use your imagination a little bit. Maybe speculate if you would. Um, Lewis today, what would he say? What would be his themes? Uh, what would he want to say to academia or to students in front of him or to the press or whatever? This culture, the cultural stuff that's going on right now in UK and USA are, is so unique to any other time it would seem. But what do you think he would want to say? What would his themes be, or what would it be like? What would it be like for him? I'd be curious. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a different track with that question. Sometimes I'm asked by people, "What do you think Lewis would say?" And I don't think I can say that. Usually, when a person tries to answer that question, they end up using the author as a ventriloquist uses his dummy, and they say their ideas <laughs> through the ventriloquist. But I can say this. There are things that Lewis already said that have great relevance today. And I think the book that would be most dramatic about that would be The Abolition of Man, where he's talking about objectivity and the nature of truth. I've talked about some of it today, uh, this week, 
Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. And, and Lewis even defines uh, truth this way. He, he, he uses as a, as a, um, uh, a symbol for truth and objectivity the word Tao. You could say Tao if you want, T-A-O. He takes an Eastern word on purpose because he wants to show that the concept he's talking about is not a Western concept. It's a universal concept. And he calls it the doctrine of objective, the Tao is the doctrine of objective value. The belief that certain things are really true and others really false to the kind of things we are and the kind of thing the universe is. So I could say if I was going to apply what Lewis has said there, if you look at things today where people are saying you could choose your own gender or whatnot, Lewis would say that that is to, to go against the grain of reality. And consequently, if you go against reality, you can't have truth. And so if you, if you it goes even further than that. You, you can't have truth because you've denied reality. And that means then, too, if you do stuff like, well, we can let whatever pronoun you want to be the pronoun you're going to use, then the reality no longer shapes what language I'm going to use, which means culture begins to die. Because if there is no language, it's, it's like Babel, the Tower of Babel. And interestingly enough, Lewis picking up on the abolition of man and trying to depict the ideas of it in one of his novels, That Hideous Strength, he has it ends, end in a kind of Babel-like uh, world where everybody loses the capacity for community in the world where whatever you say goes, relativism and so on when it goes. So it, it, I think he's already said stuff that would be helpful. I, I don't have to tell you what I think he would say per se, but I think I could say what he said that would have application for today. Is that fair, Jerry? Thank you. Yeah, one more right here. Forgive my uh, prompt questions, Jerry, but when you were talking about the seed, you can ignore this if you want, but I remember um, being moved by you your take on watching The Notebook. And, uh -huh. and uh -huh. I would love to be reminded, or do you uh -huh. mind sharing that s story? Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I've shared it here before. Um, I remember I was coming back from uh, uh, overseas, and I, I always sleep when I go over, but I always get caught up on my movies when I come back. And I saw a movie on, on the plane, and it, it, it moved me deeply. And I found myself weeping at the end of the movie. And I don't, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a high T, I live in my head. You know, Myers-Briggs, a thinker. And, and for me to just burst into tears on an airplane, uh, it's happened only one other time, and it was when I finished Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida. But this, this time, I saw this movie, and I burst into tears. And I was trying to figure out why. So the movie that I have in mind is The Notebook. Whenever I mention it, usually people start laughing because it's a chick flick, and I'm not supposed to watch chick flicks, but I'm secure enough in my masculinity. I can watch a chick <laughs> flick. And if you, how many of you have seen it? Okay, how many of you did not see it? So to rehearse it for you and to remind those who have, it begins with James Garner, this old man, going to a, a memory care unit, and he starts to read a story to an old lady played by Gina Rollins. She's standoffish, so you realize she's the one with dementia. And an orderly says, it's okay, he comes and reads stories here every day. 
And the impression made is that this old man in his retirement goes and reads stories at the old folks' home. And the whole movie is present time, him reading the story in flashback to a town, a small town uh, in the south, near South Carolina, near Charleston. And, and, and there's a boy who lives in that town who, who has a high school diploma. He likes reading the, uh, the poetry of Walt Whitman and so on, but he, he's from a poor family and so on. There's a young girl who comes to that town with her family to vacation for the summer. If they can vacation from the summer, clearly she comes from means. And she has a good education, the best education her parents can buy. Seems like there's everything to go against any summer romance to develop between these two. He's poor, he's not very educated, she's wealthy, she's educated. Her family's intact, but very pretentious. His family, we don't know what happened to the mother. Did she die? Did she abandon the family? There's brokenness, clearly, and there's some humility there. And it looks like the relationship's not going to develop, but all of a sudden, it does. And a summer romance breaks out. And when the girl's parents find out about it, they want to get her out of there because they've got plans for their daughter. So they're leaving the town, and the boy's running after the girl, and he's yelling out to her, I will write to you every day. She hears it, but so does the mother. And she's in her own tears, but the mother then every day gets the post box before the daughter can and intercepts the mail, and more counts against this relationship ever working. Then World War II breaks out, and it separates them by condition and circumstance further and further apart. And it's at that point the director kind of tips his hand and you realize it's this old man and this old lady's story. And he goes every day to the rest home to read the story of how their love started and emerged and so on. The scene that got me was right towards the end of the movie. Uh, James Garner is sitting at a table in a hospital. And it's not just a formica table. It actually has a tablecloth on it. There's a rose and a bud vase. There's a candle burning. There's music at a record player playing all the music that had informed their relationship. And the whole environment is screaming, pulsating out to this woman, the love of this man for her. And right then, he finishes the story he's been reading to her all day. And she says, that's the most beautiful love story I have ever heard in my life. And she says, and it sounds so familiar. And at that moment, cognition washes across her face. And she says, it's our story, isn't it? He says, yeah. She says, how much time do we have? He said, last time it was only five minutes. And she hears the music. She says, how are the kids? That's a question a mother would ask, right? He said, they came to see you today. She says, tell them I love them. He says, I will. And as the music plays, she says, hold me. Take me in your arms. And they begin to dance across that hospital floor. And as quickly as she slipped out of dementia, she slips, slips back into it once again and loses cognition, finds herself in the arms of a stranger, begins screaming, and the orderlies have to come in and sedate her. And James Garner's character is leaning against the wall, watching it all, biting his knuckle, and just weeping. And, and that's when I lost it. And I said, why? What is it about that scene? And then it dawned on me, this is all of our story. 
We're all part of an impossible love relationship that seems to have so many things counting against it. And yet we're constantly being told about the love of this one who cares for us so deeply. And we live most of our life in dementia, but there come those moments when all of a sudden we come to clarity. And it's so great, so rich. Our hearts are soaring. And then some little inconvenience happens, and we fall right back into our dementia. And when I saw James Garner's character biting his knuckles, weeping, I thought, that is a window into the very heart of God who loves us so deeply and keeps telling us his story. Is that the one you wanted me to tell? <laughs> it's good. Anyway, your wife is crying. Donna's crying. You're crying. Your sister's crying. He just wanted his family to all sit there crying. Your mom's crying. Anybody else crying? Huh? What? Were they both no? Were they both die together on the same bed? Huh? Yeah, it's tender. He goes to see her in the hospital, and you find out he's been in the hospital all along too. He has a bad heart. And he climbs up in the bed, puts his arms around her, and they both pass together. It's very tender. Yeah. She died. He died. Lovingly holding on. Yeah. It's powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. They call that a spoiler alert, okay? <laughs> you, do you know what? C.S. Lewis says this any good story is worth retelling. So if you know it already, no big deal. You know? Yes, Linda. Linda. Just a real now, this is This is crazy. Her husband, John, and I were both professors at Wheaton College. His wife, Linda, and my wife taught together in the same school in, in, right by Wheaton College. Isn't that fun? In the same subject. They were in the same department. It's kind of cool. Okay, my, my question will have a pretty short answer. I want to know which Lewis book you read the most times. Which one has the 60 plus? Which Abolition one? of Man. Abolition of Man. I never taught a class where I didn't unpackage that one. I think it's central and foundational to all his other stuff. So I think people should know that book. It, the first time I read it, I was in college in a philosophy class. I, there was a philosophy pro There were only three Christian professors at my college that I knew of were Christian. And one of them was this Michael Pretorius. Let's say his name and honor him. He was a Stanford philosophy grad, a PhD from Stanford. And, and he was the best teacher I ever had in college. And, and I would go see him all the time and talk with him, and I was intrigued by him. He had us read The Abolition of Man. I'll get back to that in just a second. But he was the first person. I got my first D in third grade, and, and nobody was upset. They, I think they were surprised I did that well. <laughs> and I just always thought I was stupid. And, and I remember a, 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 a French teacher in high school. He got mad at our class, and he says, I've checked your cubes. Everybody in this class has an IQ over 100 except one. And he looked right at me like that, and I said, okay, I'm just stupid. And so the thing was, I just sort of operated that way. And this philosophy teacher looked at me, and he said, you've got a brain. You, you can think. And it only takes sometimes 
one person to speak into your life, and it can eradicate years of wrongful self-identity. And so all of a sudden for Praetorius, I majored in him. I took every course he offered. I missed one course to have a minor in philosophy as a PE major. I had to take an Eastern religion class, and I was thinking about taking it, but the professor was from, from Asia, and I couldn't understand his accent. And I thought it was going to be a complex class, and if I can't quite get it, it's not the teacher's fault, then I thought I would do badly in the class. I didn't want to take it. But anyway, Praetorius required the abolition of man because he wanted his students to know the nature of truth and how truth works. And by the way, that book, too, there's an appendix at the back where Lewis is quoting from works from the Eastern world and the Western world, from the past and the present. And he's trying to show that this understanding of truth, this objective approach to truth, is universal. It's not Western. And so you get some of these people who say, oh, that's a, you know, you know, you're a xenophobe or something like that. No. And so consequently, um, that book has been so helpful to me in shaping how I think about things. And then you bring that understanding of truth and the nature of truth to anything you look at. And at least you may not always get it right, but at least you have a, a, a GPS to get you through all the stuff. Is that fair? So that's the one. Abolition of man. It's not, it, when I read it in Praetorius' class the first time, I'm going, what's this all about? You know, I had no clue. So you have to read it more than once. But I would, I, I've, I've read it way more than 60, but I stop at 60 because that's kind of where I stop keeping track. Yeah, what do you got, Tommy? Where's the thing there? What do you want written on your tombstone, if anything? Uh, we, Claudia and I have talked about it. Because I'm going to be cremated, and they're going to put some of my ashes, you know, at the football field where I played college football, some at Wheaton College where I coach, and some on Port Meadow Walk. She says, I'm going to save a little bit and put it by my grave at Rose Hills. And, and, and she says, plus you need to have your tombstone. So what do you want on your tombstone? This is what I want. I'm with Jesus. Will I see you there? Yeah. And that's what I want. And maybe John 3.16 on there, too. How's that? Yeah. Yes, sir. Coming at How do you address difficult questions with people you're talking to about Jesus for the first time? How do I address what? Difficult questions like, what is hell? Where am I going when I die? The problem of pain, things like that. Well, a lot of them I've studied. And so I draw on some of the stuff I've studied about. And, and, and some of them I don't know. You know, there's always questions. And I'll say it's a good question. Um, I'd be happy to go dig and see what I can find out and get back to you. I don't think, excuse me, I don't think any tough question is the end of a conversation. It's the opportunity for you to go dig and work hard so that you could do what you would want to do if you knew what you said might, might lead to them coming to Christ. Uh, on the hell thing, I'm actually working on a book on hell, and and it's it, the working title I have is C.S. Lewis, Hell and the Love of God. Um, it's a horrible title, and I'm not good at titling books. You know, nobody wants to buy my books because they're books like um, uh, C.S. Lewis and the Problem of Evil: An Investigation of a Pervasive Theme. Is that a book you want to go out and buy? So I have a friend of mine who's good at titling things, and he's going to try and help me title the hell book, but. When you were in third grade, did you ever go to your teacher's desk? 
and see her arithmetic textbook open on the desk. What did her book have in it that yours didn't? The answer key. Yeah, the answers. And here is the answer to everything. You open up the Bible, you look at something like predestination. Ephesians 1.4, in love he predestined us. If you come up with a configurement of the doctrine of predestination that's deterministic and causes you to doubt whether God loves you, you didn't do the math right because you didn't get the answer in the text. And you got to keep going back. The doctrine of hell can only be understood properly if you come up at the end of the study saying, I see how God loves us even more. I don't believe God ever stopped loving Satan. He can't stop loving him. God is love. That means Satan's incorrigibility doesn't diminish God's character. Satan's incorrigibility led to eternal rep reprobation on his part. And Lewis says this, I believe the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And the book of Job in Job 21 actually says that. Those going down to Sheol say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of thy ways. Lewis says in one of his books, what are you asking God to do? Do you want him to just forgive all their sins and open every door and invite them into heaven? But he's already done that in Christ. And if they refuse, what is he to do? He's done everything for them. And so consequently, we start to begin to see how some of this love comes through. Um, there's, there's tons and tons of places in Scripture where God loves you. Did I mention the one on Matthew 23 the other night? Matthew 23, it's a really interesting passage. It's the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven times. You get to the seventh one, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build shrines to the prophets, testifying to the fact that it was your parents who killed the prophets. Who are you going to save? Who are you going to get to save you from the wrath of hell? Jesus says. And then he says, Therefore, I will keep sending you prophets. And that's the one where he ends the chapter. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone those who are sent to you. How I wanted to gather you under my wings like a hand gathers its chicks. That's the heart of God. If you come up with any doctrine that, dis that, that, that distracts you from that reality, you're not doing your theology well. Does that make sense? So I'd talk with them about stuff like that. Is that fair? Okay. Yes, one, one more question. There he is right back there. We got Chris. Chris Ross. He's a C.S. Lewis guy. <laughs> I got uh, one very quick question followed by a, a somewhat longer question. My son was taking notes last night. You said, G.K. Chesterton said that obedience is an antidote to, and we missed the last word. Obedience is the antidote. Oh, oh no. George MacDonald said, obedience is the opener of eyes. And that's the antidote to acrasia or acrasia. Acrasia is a word coined by uh, Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics. In that book, Aristotle says, if I do something wrong, then the only way I can live with myself is either to change or rationalize the wrong. And the process of rationalizing the wrong is acrasia or acrasia. And krasia is the Greek word for command. You put the alpha negation on it, and you lose command of your moral life. You make excuses for your bad, and so on. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. Mm. Paul put it this way, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. So consequently, obedience is a way that I can lead once again to sight. I can do the right thing even if I don't quite understand it, but I believe the authority that has told me what to do that comes down to me in objective God's objective self-revelation in Scripture. If I obey it, it begins to fight against all these delusional things I've done to try to justify my bad acts. Does that make sense? Yes. So the other question is, we, we started to talk about this by the lake the other day, uh, but didn't have a chance to expand on it. In that hideous strength, Lewis works out in fi fictional form the themes of the abolition of man. Right. And uh, there's the one character, Dr. Dimble, who at a very central part of the story reflects that uh, things are coming to a point. There used to be more elbow room in the world, but things keep getting more and more themselves. And there's less, he doesn't say wiggle room, but effectively that's what he's saying. And I wondered, what do you think that, uh, that part of the book has to say to the church today? How could the church benefit from reflecting on that theme within the book? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, there's some several possibilities. It could be that the lines of demarcation are clearly drawn, and the the contrast between worldliness and godliness is becoming more and more pronounced, and we're coming to a point where there's going to be a showdown. Could mean something like that. It could mean that um, it clarifies what the real issues are, either self-referentialism and, and, and subjectivism, or objectivity and opening up to a wider world and not being self-referential. Um, it could mean any of those. I'm not sure. I, I just reread that hideous strength recently, within the last, I think, month, and, and I don't know exactly what that means. But it's a good quote, and you could teach a whole course on it because there's lots of options. <laughs> Is that okay? All right. Um, I, I want to say one last thing before we go. Yeah. If you're here and you have never really made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, I want to tell you this. We're all pretty messed up. I believe in the high ideal of love, but there have been times I've had sharp words with the people I love most in the world. I believe in justice, and yet, even in believing in justice, I know there have been times I haven't been so fair in my treatment of others. I meant to be, but... I often come up short. And anybody who's honest knows that they come up short. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And the Bible says our propensity to do that is because we have fallen and we are sinners. But we are not abandoned. The God of the universe loves us unconditionally. And the reach of his unconditional love is that he forgives us for all of that. And if you're here tonight and you're still living a life of pretense trying to cover up in your own way, 
the reality that you are bankrupt without God and you need him. I just want to tell you, I could see the burden lifted off your shoulders if you would embrace the love of Christ and his forgiveness. And we wouldn't, it wouldn't be right if we didn't have an opportunity for people who hear, because maybe there's somebody who just doesn't know him. And we'd all love for you to come into relationship with him. So if you'll pray with me, you just bow your head and close your eyes for a minute. And if this is intriguing to you and you haven't made a decision for Christ yet, then, then um, I want you to just pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I open the door of my life and I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Come into my life. Take control of my life. Forgive me of my sins and make me the person you want me to be. And I'm grateful. Thank you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you want to talk about it a little bit more, just see me afterwards or see Art afterwards. We'd be happy to talk with you and see if we can't make some further connection and maybe do some things that would encourage you in your newfound faith. But it wouldn't be right if we didn't end our time with that.